Hello, date night fam. Trusting that your year is off to a blessed start and you're growing in the grace of our Lord. Yes, and we are so excited to spend another hour with yeah, you. Yeah, we got to share some big news. Something happened in our home this last week, and we're we're pretty pumped about it. Do you want to tell? I, I'll happy happy to tell. So Ethan bought his first car. Woohoo! Yes, he's been working and saving, and now he's going to be cruising. What is it? A uh, Kia, Kia Forte. Forte. Nicer than my first car. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and I think we're all super excited for him, right? Well. Kinda. I've also been having some mommy motions. Mommy emotions. I love that. Get it? Mommy emotions. Yes. <laughs> That's okay. I bet every mom feels that way. You pop out the little minion and before you know it, moves from band-aids to beards and they're driving. Yes, I know. I'm just, I'm, I'm processing through discontentment and instead of looking backward, I just want to make sure I'm appreciating and thanking God for it. Every opportunity moving forward. Amen. Well, hey, date night fam, that's our big news. I know it, it's it's world changing. Yes, Ethan got a car. Woohoo! So, are you about to kick? Yes, me out? Yes, yes, yes. I'm going to kick you out again. Okay. One more week of guy stuff, beards and Bibles only. Speaking of, but just one more, and then next week we'll have a special episode with and for the gals. But before you go, are you willing to explain once again, like you did last week, why it's helpful the ladies forward this episode to the husband? I would husband? love to. Thank you. Well, ladies, it's important to support our husband's spiritual growth and pray that the Lord moves mightily in and through them. But it's most beneficial for our husbands to receive clear truth from other men so that they don't feel we're observing, condescending, tapping our toes at them. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> but please consider hitting pause here, forwarding him this episode. And if he wants to listen later, that's 100% his call. Thank you, my love. We're going to miss you. I'll miss you. All right. Brothers, let's roll. Marks of a Godly Man, part due. All right, man. Last week, we did a quick fire round on the first 10 marks of a godly man. We pulled straight from 1 Timothy and Titus and learned that uh, though the list is often used and in context for aspiring pastors, the assumption is that every man in the church should be striving for it uh, or else where do you pull your leaders from? So let's review last week's list real quick. God's man is above reproach, a one-woman man, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an overdrinker, not selfish, not quick-tempered, and in case you found yourself weak in any of those areas, I gave a few project ideas to spur growth. So 10 down, 10 to go. Let's roll. All right, mark number 11. You ready? God's man is not pugnacious. Now, we don't use that word much anymore. I get it, but it's a great word for describing many of us men, especially back in our BC days. And the KJV makes it real clear when it uses a better word or a more understandable word that we would understand called striker, one who physically strikes. And in both 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul puts this word next to being an overdrinker, the point being obvious, right? Men who drink tend to be men who brawl. And if you disagree, then stand outside a bar during the Super Bowl. Across Scripture, we see the consequences of being a striker. Cain takes out his brother. Moses doesn't get into the promised land. Peter lops off a dude's ear. And contrary to man's sinful tendency in the unredeemed flesh to strike, to retaliate, to, end quote, handle our business, Jesus set a new bar for our Christian ethic when he said, quote, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, don't resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn 
turn to him the other also. Now, Jesus obviously wasn't talking about just warfare uh, or protecting our family or self-defense or boxing or MMA. But in the realm of daily life, God's man is not, Jesus says, to be a violent man, a retaliatory man, but instead he's to be a restrained man. And this was always a major issue for me growing up. My words and my temper caused a lot of issues in high school and college, and it's really one of the reasons that I've been careful with competitive sports since being saved. And here's a quick project, by the way, if you struggle in this area. Learn to wait before you respond. And what I mean is train yourself to pause before using words. Wait an hour before texting back, a day before emailing, or a week even before meeting with the boss about a tense subject. And in any situation where you sense the unredeemed flesh moving your blood pressure to rise, the adrenaline to fire, turn and walk away. And if you lean toward violence, make sure to enter biblical counseling immediately. All right, Mark number 12 falls right in line. God's man isn't an overdrinker. He's not quick-tempered. He's not a striker. And you're ready? He's not contentious. And we've all been around a quarrelsome man, an argumentative guy. I'd rather be around a skunk than a man always wanting to debate me. Let's describe a contentious man. He's the man who says, quote, my way or the highway. He's the man who struggles against everyone. You know, the guy on the board or team who always has to be right. The man who wants to debate and starts every sentence with, well, actually. And instead of being a peacekeeper or better, a peacemaker, he's always stirring up trouble or pointing out why others are wrong. The Proverbs actually call this man the fool or the scoffer and describe how this mouth, like an archer pinging people with arrows, wounds everything that gets in its way. And that's the opposite of the Christian life. Jesus said, quote, he that is greatest is to be the servant. And he even warned pastors, Paul did, to shepherd the flock with gentle willingness, never lording it over people like the unsaved pagans did. Paul constantly reminded Christians how Christ had laid his life down for them and how they should do the same for others, doing literally nothing, he says, from vanity, selfishness, or empty conceit. You know, Paul was consumed with Christian unity and meant a cardinal foundation of our faith is unity. In the home, in friendship, in the church, we're either a unity maker or a unity breaker. And if you struggle here, it's because you're selfish or you're jealous. James says you're motivated by what he called an earthly wisdom, and you have things in your heart that you covet. It's some kind of power, some kind of money, some kind of sex, and when you don't get your way, you won't cheer for others who do. So naturally, you swing the pendulum over to being the dictator or all the way to the other side of pity and bitterness, and you wonder why nobody ever listens. Now, here's a project to try if you may struggle with quarreling. Write the name of one person you've disagreed with in the past 60 days. Write down the core thoughts or feelings in your heart that drove you to argue with that person. Then determine if that core thought or feeling was a true biblical sin issue or maybe just a personal preference. And if it is merely a personal preference, which 90% of the time it will be, locate the person and confess. Ask forgiveness for breaking peace over something the Lord never said was worth breaking peace over. Then make that lifestyle a habit. Okay, mark number 13 of a godly man is gentleness. Gentleness. And don't check out. Gentleness doesn't necessarily mean what we think it does. You know, if you picture a soft, cushy dude who's never seen a gym, wears white pants, and does everything his wife says all the time. That's not it. Yes, gentleness does mean being even keel and calm under pressure without quick or harsh responses and overall tender, but the word itself refers to a harnessed strength or a reined strength, like a horse with a bit or a lion in a cage. It's meekness, but not weakness. 
And our ultimate model is Christ. Think about it. Here's God putting on skin. He's living through all the trials and temptation and heartache and mockery and cruelties of life. And at any moment, he can call down a legion of angels or snap his finger to end earth history, but he never does. Instead, he listens and he loves and he waits and he forgives, all because there are greater eternal ends. That, my brothers, is gentleness. And throughout the New Testament, Paul showcased the same spirit. Even though he was tough on sin, he was patient with the unsaved, restorative with penitent sinners, and incredibly kind to brothers and sisters in the faith, even when they disagreed with him. The point is, God's man is stable. The EKG of his emotions is stable. He's not a guy with wild mood swings at home, at work, and at church. And here's a project to get your strength under control. Put together a small evaluation form with questions about gentleness. And just allow people to rank you from one to five. One being weak, five being strong. And ask questions like, am I consistent? Am I stable? Am I calm in my responses? And give that little form to your family, to a couple friends, and even a boss, and see what comes back. Mark number 14 is a make or break. God's man will not love money. And before we go any further, let's be clear. Money itself isn't evil, but the Bible says the love of money is. Cover to cover, the Bible explains each of us will either serve God or money. There's no middle ground. And it all comes back to priorities. Your primary focus is either earth down here or heaven up there. And if you struggle with this, go back and listen to the podcast we did on marriage and money to find a balance. So I just want to ask you straight up, no explanations, no mincing words, is your lifestyle focused on treasure here or treasure there? Do you think more about money or more about Christ? And if you know deep down it's money and materialism, you're headed for disaster, both in this life and in the life to come. See, Jesus tells a frightening story in Luke chapter 12 about a rich man who kept buying and investing, buying and investing, buying and investing with the goal to sit back one day, retire, and say, hey, look, I made it. But the very night that he retired and kicked up his feet and looked for the cruise packages, God took his life and required that he give account. And God actually said to him, you fool. See, Jesus asked that question. He said, what does it profit a man? What will it profit you if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? If you're concerned that you may be a money-loving man, here's an easy project. Pull your bank statement online, look at where your money goes, and if your money mostly goes to earthly things and little or none of it to heavenly pursuits, then you've got your answer. Your treasure and your heart are connected. Show me your wallet and I can show you what you love. All right, number 15 may be the most significant mark of Christian maturity, a man who leads his home well. And sadly, I meet many men who struggle here. And this one keeps me up at night, too, because the simple truth is our marriage and home are a reflection of our leadership. Now, let me give a couple disclaimers. Paul never says that all our kids need to be Christian and live a spotless life. Nor is he saying our little children will be perfectly behaved and never disobey. He's obviously not saying our wives will be perfect or fit into some cookie-cutter mold either, or that we'll be super successful in business and always provide perfectly, because the reality is there's no perfect marriage, no perfect family, and no perfect leader. In fact, often, men who are successful in business and make lots of money become pretty poor husbands and fathers. So what Paul does mean is God's man will have a well-ordered family, meaning a family that's passed the test of time, where a household remains committed in the big picture to Christ, where a wife is dedicated to her husband, and children will maintain respect for authority, and where every member will grow as a healthy member of their society. And the stone-cold truth is we can fool our church friends, we can fool our work friends, and we can fool even the world, but not our wife and kids. They see the real us. 
And if our life isn't based in Christ and pursuing his word, they're going to sniff it out. And any attempt at our leadership will begin to fall on deaf ears. So if you're a man and you struggle with leading the home and maybe you question if you're leading it well, here's a few thoughts. Number one, keep listening to these podcasts because that's what they're for. Number two, go read Ephesians 5.25, which says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and commit today to going all in for your woman. Number three, 1 Peter 3, 7 says, you want to commit to living with your wife in an understanding way. So go study what it means to live with your wife in a sensitive way. And number four, go read Ephesians 6, 4 and commit to not frustrating your kids, raising them instead in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And number five, remember your children are being given their father image from you, meaning you are God's representative in that home. All right, we're in the home stretch. Mark of God's man number 16. A good reputation in the community. A good reputation in the community. And I'll gloss this because we hit it at the start. But a simple word study reveals God's desire for his man to bear a good testimony to the world. And interestingly, sometimes we want there to be public shame for our Christianity, while other times we don't want there to be public shame for our faith. Let me go ahead and explain that. There are two types of reproach or shame attached to God's man in the New Testament. The first is a positive reproach, like when Jesus said, quote, Blessed are you when men reproach you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So positive reproach is where fallen men in the world mock the righteous testimony of God's man. But there's also a negative reproach or a negative shame, and Peter alludes to that. He says, quote, by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, thief, or evildoer. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel, quote, reproach. So it's pretty basic. A Christian man will either have a testimony so like Jesus that the fallen men will shame him, or so unlike Jesus that the righteous men will shame him. And we want to be in the first group. So if you question what your testimony is like, go ahead and make a quick checklist. Number one, am I above board in my marital and sexual purity? Number two, am I above any question about my financial spending? Number three, am I above any accusation in my ethics at work? By and large, if there isn't a thread for someone to pull in your sex life, your financial life, and your work life, you very likely have a solid and glowing reputation in your church and your local community. And mark of a godly man, number 17, is loving what is good. And let me point out how massive this one is in an age where our society loves what is evil. I mean, we're literally watching Western society crumble from any sense of Judeo-Christian virtue, and for that matter, even basic moral sanity— But notice Paul says God's man will not only do good, he'll love good. And we see the contrast of good versus evil across the scriptures. Paul says we aren't to be overcome by evil, but rather to overcome evil with good, Romans 12, 21. He also says that we'll all stand before the Lord to give an account for whether we've done good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. And in Philippians 4, 8, Paul helps us define what good actually looks like. He says what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and of good repute and excellent And obviously, that's opposite pagans, who are selfish, use foul language, sexually immoral, deceptive, and partying. Put simply, a man who loves good loves God, and loves his word, and seeks his will. And to put it even more plainly, God's man stands out from the world. He doesn't buy into the progressive theology, the pagan sexuality, the liberal ideology, and he charts his course 100% according to the Bible. So here's a simple project. If you'd like to evaluate your love for good, starting tonight, memorize Romans 12, 1 and 2. And daily write out at least one way that you're not being conformed to the spirit of our age. Instead, you're being transformed as a witness to the glories of Christ. 
And mark number 18 is that God's man is just. And this isn't social justice. It's not BLM justice or any other woke version of justice. This is a word in the Bible that actually means biblically just, biblically righteous, or a man who's living a righteous life. Now, real quick, there's two primary types of righteousness in the Bible. The first is what we call positional righteousness, or being declared right in the eyes of God. And that's 100% done through the atonement of Christ on the cross. But there's also what we call a practical righteousness, where a Christian begins to live like the Lord who saved him, and becomes a mature man who makes mature judgments. Let me give you a few examples. In the Old Testament, Solomon is an example because he had what First Kings called an understanding heart to judge. Daniel's an even more exceptional example of a God-fearing life that judged fairly, even in the courts of a pagan king. And in the New Testament, Jesus often referenced himself as judging fairly what he heard from the Father, and Paul even commanded employers to be fair in their judgment with their servants. The point is, is that God's man makes decisions and treats people in a fair and upright way. So here's a simple project if you want to grow in the area of proper decision-making and wise judgment. Number one, look for ways to spend time around mature, God-fearing men who don't manipulate others but treat them fairly. Number two, when you have a big decision to make, run it by that particular mature person for counsel and really let them speak into you. Number three, if you blow it and you make an unfair decision or become manipulative in one of your choices or treat someone unfairly or unwisely, admit it. Ask forgiveness and rectify. And number four, don't dwell on past failures. Remember, Paul said, not that I've obtained it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I'm always reaching forward to what lies ahead. So keep going, brother. Keep going. Two left. Mark number 19 of a godly man. He's devout. He's devout. And like the word just, this word also fits under the practical righteousness banner, but is more specific, meaning set apart to God, and just means that we're becoming more like Christ every day, growing from one degree of glory to the next and more useful to God this year than last. And Paul doesn't leave this ethereal. In fact, let me give you a list. In Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, he lays out the game plan. In Ephesians 4, 24, he says, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Notice there's our two words. Then he spells out in detail what he means by this lifestyle of holiness or lifestyle of being devout. So grab a pen and jot them down. Here we go. What it'll mean is you're constantly trying to put on truth. Verse 25. You're constantly trying to make sure you don't let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 26. You don't steal, but you work hard. Verse 28. You don't use foul language, verse 29. You don't slander anyone, verse 31. There's not even a hint of sexual sin, chapter 5, verse 3. No coarse joking, chapter 5, verse 4. You're using your time well, chapter 5, verse 15. You don't get drunk, chapter 5, verse 18. You serve your church, chapter 5, verse 21. You lay down your life for your wife, verse 25. You don't provoke your kids, chapter 6, verse 4. You work hard at the office, chapter 6, verse 5. You treat employees fairly, chapter 6, verse 9. So there's a great list from Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 that specifies how we are to actually walk holy. And it makes for a simple growth project. Just print out all those commands of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, put them in bullet form in your journal or on a dashboard, and then turn them into personal goals and ask the Holy Spirit to make you the man of God he wants you to be. A perfect setup, by the way, for our last mark of a godly man. Number 20, he's not a new convert. 
And this is an obvious one in context because Paul's naming the qualifications for pastoral ministry, but there's a broader application for all of us. And that's found in the last half of 1 Timothy 3.16, which says he's not a new convert, lest he become, keyword, conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now, the Greek for conceited there is just blinded by pride or losing perspective. And it's like a new Christian who gets wrapped in a smokescreen of pride and falls out of his ministry position. Just like the famed old proverb said, pride comes before the fall. So at the heart of Paul's concern here is actually pride. And if you're a newer Christian, you need to mortify pride. It's not about you. It's not about your place in the church. Brothers, your chance to preach or teach, the offerings you give, the number of people you see saved. And if you think in any way that church or Christianity is about you, you're immature and you're set up for a fall. And here's the big warning. It's not just new converts. Any Christian, all of us, no matter how long we've been in the faith, can become a victim of Satan's pride darts where we start viewing our faith through the lens of accomplishment and accolades, and that's what prompted Paul to write those famous words, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of your works that no one, not one of us, should ever boast. And here's a quick project to discern a struggle with pride. You ready for this? Rate yourself 1 to 10, 1 being the worst and 10 being absolutely perfect, on the following questions. Here we go. Number one, how do you rate your reputation as a Christian? Number two, how well are you controlling your sexual temptation? Number three, are you self-controlled and well-ordered in areas like dress, eating, and time management? Number four, are you using your home to care for others? Next, do you have a knowledge of the Bible and a quality of life that enables you to communicate the Bible effectively? Are you addicted to anything that's controlling your life? Do you often need to have your own way? Do you lose your temper easily? Have you recently hit someone in anger? Do you argue or quarrel often? Are you known as a mild-mannered and gentle person? Are you free from the love of money? Are your wife and children in order? Do you strive for what is good and fair? And are you more set apart for God's work this year than last? Now, obviously, you already realize that list is just the 20 items we've already studied. But as you can see, if we're honest with ourselves and we review that list in order, it's pretty hard to be prideful, realizing we all have a long way to go and need increasing grace from above. Well, hey, brothers, we did it. 20 marks of a godly man straight from the text. And if all that sounds like too much, I want you to remember Paul's words with me. He said, it's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. You and I can't do this, but our great God can. So let's submit to him and let's go for the win. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, please bless my brothers, bless their homes, bless their churches, and raise up in this generation an army of gospel warriors who pursue righteousness, love, lead, and sacrifice for your glory and their family's good. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Date Night family, we're going to be back in 168 short hours. By the way, Bree too. So send us a message and leave a review. Thanks again to Ethan, our producer, the gracious people of Mission Bible Church. Keep living for the gospel and fighting for the family.